Hello from Lahinch, County Clare on the wild west coast of Ireland. I'm Rory McKiernan, author of Hitching for Hope, and you're very welcome to the Love and Courage podcast. Thanks for tuning in and a very special thanks to all you podcast patrons for helping this community of listeners grow and reach people all over the world. This is a particularly important and powerful episode, one very close to my heart. My guest is Noelle Brown, and she's a well-known Irish actor, playwright and activist. Noelle was born in the Bessborough Mother and Baby Home in Cork, and much of her conversation centres around her campaign work to advance the rights and voices of mother and baby home survivors. Mother and baby homes were institutions mostly run by the Catholic Church, where pregnant women who were unmarried were sent to have their babies. These institutions were established in 1922, the same time as the foundation of the Irish state. And the last one didn't close until as recently as 1998. In that time, tens of thousands of women were sent to these institutions, many of the women incarcerated against their will in often cold and cruel conditions were under the age of 18. Some were as young as 12 and some were the victims of rape. The Irish state, which in many ways modelled itself as a Catholic state, had the world's highest proportion of women sent to such institutions in the 20th century. At the heart of this regime was a dominant moral and religious code which deemed these women to be somehow impure or lesser and that their children for some reason were seen as illegitimate despite the creed that were all God's children. It is estimated that 15% of babies born in these homes died. At one point an inspection of the Bessborough mother and baby home revealed an 82% infant mortality rate. These children were often buried in unmarked graves such as the mass grave discovered in Tume County Galway. One of those buried there was a relative of mine, a baby by the name of Peter Malone, someone my family only recently found out about thanks to the campaigning of the remarkable, courageous historian Catherine Carlos. Large numbers of children in these homes were sold overseas to foreign couples, often in secret deals and against the wishes of their parents and families. Many of those born in the homes were later unable to access their birth certificates despite years of trying. Many, like Noel, never got to meet their birth parents and were often blocked by the authorities and relevant institutions from doing so. Another guest on this podcast, Joseph Farrell, talks about his story in a previous episode, so check that out later on, perhaps, Joseph Farrell. At the time of recording this episode, Noel was fresh from running a powerful St. Patrick's Day production at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin called Home Part One, where the testimonies of survivors were given voice on the stage of the National Theatre. This was in the wake of a controversial report from the Mother and Baby Home Commission. Noel is a hugely important voice on all of this and brings great depth, passion, insight and humanity to her work and her activism. We also talk about her life as an actor and as a playwright and you can watch the video version of this on the Love and Courage YouTube channel and also on my Facebook page Rory McKiernan Hitching for Hope so you can check out the video version over there if you feel so inclined and once again thanks to all who continue to chip in and support the Love and Courage podcast which helps ensure voices like Noelle's gets out into the world and if you want to chip in it just takes one minute over at Love and Courage org. Whatever you chip in is up to you. The price of a cup of coffee or more once off or monthly, it's up to you and it's all appreciated. And thanks too to everyone who continues to share and promote the podcast. And please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And ratings and reviews all matter as well. I'm still doing various 
online events around my book, Hitching for Hope, and I have a few more US and UK dates in the pipeline with support from Culture Ireland. And thanks again for all the support with the book, all the reviews, all the feedback, all the emails. It really is all appreciated. As always, info on the book, which is available as paperback, ebook, and audiobook from all the main retailers or signed copies direct from me, go to hitchingforhope.com, hitchingforhope.com. And my other big focus at the moment, a very exciting one, is preparing for my wife Susan Quirk's stunning debut album launch. It's a, a really beautiful, wonderful piece of work. I'm really excited uh, for you to get to hear it soon. She's a wonderful new single out at the moment also called To The Bone and that celebrates our inner strength during hard times. And you can listen to this on Spotify, Bandcamp, Apple and YouTube and places like that on over at SusanQuirk.com. And I'm also including it at the end of this episode as a tribute to Noelle, to all the amazing campaigners, activists and survivors who are keeping the light shining and to all of you listeners, especially anyone who who's going through a hard time right now. So stay tuned to the very end of the episode to hear the song. Courage is where it's at right now. And Noelle truly is a voice of love and courage. It's a privilege to bring her voice to the podcast and to share it with you. So here we go. Let's get going with this conversation with Noelle Brown. Noelle, thanks for joining me on the Love and Courage podcast. How are you keeping? I'm good. I'm good. Delighted to be on here chatting to you. Ah, thank you. Um, so you've had a big week, the week that we're recording here, um, the stage of the Abbey, some very, I suppose, I mean, I, I almost can't do justice to what occurred on that stage. Would you? Could you speak to it a bit? Yeah, I mean, I'm still actually overwhelmed from it, to be quite honest. And yeah. it, was, it was an event that I never dreamed would happen, really, you know, even though I've been battling around this issue for years and years and years. But it's an, it was an extraordinary event. It really was. It was, yeah, yeah. The repercussions from it will, will go on for a very, very long time. And I think it was um, it was timely. Um, and I'm so grateful to Graham and Neil at the Abbey. I mean, they've always kept up with this issue. You know, they produced my play that I wrote with Michelle Forbes, Postscript in 2017. And ever since then, they've always said, how can we help? What can we do? And it was the same in this instance when the Commissioner's uh, Investigation Report came out. Graham rang and said, I have an idea. Will you come on board? We need to do something. And, you know, I'm be forever grateful for that. But it was an extraordinary night and I'm still, people are still watching it. It's there until July 17th, but it was overwhelming. Um, I think, yeah, my heart is still full, to be quite honest. And I'm very, very grateful that it happened. Yeah. Um, and I think, as I said, I think it will, the, the ripple effect from this will go on for a very, very long time. And survivors are very grateful that their voices are finally being heard on such a platform, you know, um, it's extraordinary. At a time when theatre is is really compromised with, you know, COVID and everything else, um, to have this take place was phenomenal, incredible. Yeah, I think like compromise with COVID certainly, but there, there, there feels to me that there was an added aspect there of it being in the National Theatre and those voices being nationalised and, and honoured in such a way that that has not been happening in a, in a proper setting. No, not at all. And I think it, the fact that it was St. Patrick's Day as well really resonated, you know. Um, and when I, you know, I, I think I was, you know, I worked very hard on this with an incredible team of people. Um, and I was, you know, feeling very emotional about the whole thing. I, I, I don't think you'd want to have a heart of stone not to be moved by it. But I, I got an email from Craig in the Abbey on the day to say that 
they didn't want the building dark for such a significant event. So they had a beam of light coming out of the roof and out through the bar. out on, And I just, that finished me. <laughs> I was so emotional. I thought, wow, their sensitivity and care around this. Um, at a very, very difficult time for survivors on so many levels. Um, it's it's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, so a friend of ours, uh, Laura Murphy, was on the stage Ah. for the open letter to the Taoiseach. And we'd be very cognizant that, I mean, while we're proud to see Laura um, honouring her voice, her mother's voice, Mm -hmm. and all the many uh, stories that don't get to speak or be heard, at the same time, all of this is personal. It's not, I mean, it, it veers into the political, but it has to come at a at a toll and an energy cost to those of you that are living it, in a, in a sense. Absolutely. Laura is phenomenal, by the way. She's an extraordinary one. When I saw her letter, um, I asked that she be included in the piece in the Abbey because her strong, clear, articulate, passionate voice it was just, I, I couldn't believe it when I read the letter and it was so on the money. She's she's such a powerful voice. Um, but it is, it, it comes from the deeply personal and I think so many, you know, political movements come from the personal. Um, but it takes its toll. You know, I've told my story over and over again in terms of the play that I wrote with, with my friend Michelle, but also just in terms of the activism. It's it's really hard, you know, and I look forward to the day when I don't have to do that anymore. I've chosen to do it. No one's forcing me to do it um, because, you know, I have platform as an artist particularly. But I hope to, you know, someday to be behind a movement for something that isn't so deeply personal to me because it's very, very hard um, to, to just put yourself out there. But there are so many people that can't, you know, they don't they're not able to talk about the what they've been through. Um, and it is important. It starts, you know, I realized that in 2013 when I shared my story in theater, that the reaction, I didn't know at the time what I was doing. You know, I thought, oh, I've created some work for myself, you know, contemporary theater, telling a story. But it, the way it landed and realizing that even people close to me didn't know uh, that I didn't have a birth cert, you know, that I had gone on this journey since 2002. Um, and there's great power in the personal, you know, and people really connect with it. And it's sharing details about something that they're not aware of they don't know it they haven't lived it um it's my lived experience it's a lot of people living in ireland but you know i mean the whole issue there isn't a family in ireland that isn't affected by it i've met so many people over the years and sometimes i've met them at a particular point in their lives and then a few years later they come up to me and go i've just discovered uh, you know i have a half brother out there or my aunt had a child yeah. and so you know it, it's it's a very very much part of our history um, and so many people are affected by yeah. it or know somebody who is, you know. Yeah. And and maybe know somebody, but don't know that they actually know somebody. I mean, even yeah. I won't go into it here and now, but it was only in the last two years that uh, we realized in my family that we have a direct connection to some of what went on and, and that we were fairly oblivious to that at one level, you know. Yeah. And I suppose empathy can be cultivated with that sense of connection. Ideally, we can connect with the other without having to live that experience. But the fact is, we are all interconnected in this story. And it, for me, it feels like it's at the heart of the dysfunction of Ireland in a wider sense is that we have this sort of propensity for sweeping things under the carpet, whatever that thing might be, whether it be direct provision or otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Um, they're, they're, and, I, and I've particularly discovered it with, with this issue um, and and the knock-on effect from this issue that we're not good at admitting we've made a mistake. 
and a, and a lot of the time an, an enormous amount of hurt could be prevented if someone said oh I, I am sorry this was wrong you were treated unfairly or we made a mistake we will do something to rectify it there's just this arrogance or something around particularly coming from the government and state agencies where they will not admit that they've made a mistake or that they've done something wrong they will cover up they will hide it in secrecy and call it privacy. Um, and that's something I think we, we are costing ourselves healing time yeah. because there, there, there is, there's no admission of guilt. There's no admission of we have done something wrong. This needs to be fixed. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And this word came up time and time again in, in recent months of when the state was in a sense of denial and abstraction and, and, and deflection that it was engaged in kind of re-traumatization that mm-hmm. word kept coming up again and yep you know that that's and and i've heard it said that that kind of denial can be as damaging and sometimes more so than in, than the first injustice well it is it's like any issue not to be believed which you know w- was very clearly stamped on the commission investigation report when they spoke about our testimonies they spoke about contaminated evidence because we might have spoken to each other, we might have colluded and made it all up. Uh, To call someone a liar or to not believe what someone has said is so damaging when very clearly the evidence is there. You know what I mean? To to, to turn around to someone who's been uh, traumatised already to go, well, we don't believe you or we don't find evidence of this or we don't find evidence of that. But that's such lack of sensitivity, empathy or duty of care in a report that was supposed to be survivor-centred is absolutely appalling and it, it is a, the whole thing is against our human rights anyway but to emotionally traumatize people who are already vulnerable and there are as you as you know from you know the other night at the abbey the, the stories are horrific and that's only 14 homes and four county homes there were 100 homes in ireland we've only 14 of them so the level of of horror that's there has to be acknowledged or we will never heal we will never move on for this we will never deal with the legacy that has been handed down to people who were born in those homes or gave birth in those homes. We really have to come to terms with it. And there's no point in pushing it under the carpet and pretending it hasn't happened or ignoring us and waiting until we die, which is which has kind of been the principle that the government and the state has operated under and the church, delay, deny until someone dies. Um, I think, you know, to do that to your to your people in a country, in a nation, um, is, is inhuman and there's no room for healing. Um, and I think, you know, the public have spoken. They have. They are with us. They are supporting us, and they have been through all the campaigns over the last couple of months. Particularly, they broke the doll server with emails. You know, in terms of repeal the seal campaign and everything else. So, you know, the nation is behind us. They understand where we're coming from. So it's time, really, for the government to wake up uh, and separate from the Catholic Church for a start and stop colluding with them uh, and protecting them. Um, because this needs to be dealt with. You know, it is time sensitive for a lot of survivors and re-traumatizing is not going to solve anything. You know, it's going to create more and more hurt and pain. Um, and that has a, has a knock-on effect it, it, through generations of people. Yeah. When you say that the public are with you and that they understand or we understand, I, one of the things that I noticed and observed when I was sort of engaged in the campaigning like from a public perspective it felt like this is a moment where many of us need to get in and put our shoulder to the wheel here for this particularly this moment in time when when the state is in mass denial of, of the extent of the failures of that report um 
But one of the things I was getting back time and time again from senators and TDs was that we didn't understand that we, you know, yeah. and, and that, I mean, that really was something else to be telling people that actually had read and studied and mm. listened to voices and testimonies that we were the ones who just did not understand. So I suppose listening to you and thinking back on it all, I, I can't but not come to the conclusion that what you say there is at the heart of this matter, whereby we do need that final separation of church and state because we mm. still are enacting the same uh, institutional injustice that played out before is now still happening. That it is. Same culture. And it's quite a shock. You know what I mean? I, I didn't realise it. And it was literally over the last 17 years of trying to trace, you know, my own identity. Uh, I remember being in the doll on one of the another campaign, you know, when I started really campaigning uh, and a politician said to me, don't, I said, why is this so hard? Why are we being treated like this? And she said, don't underestimate the seam of Catholicism that is going through Irish politics. And I was shocked. I was like, what? Wait, what? You know, um, but it very clearly is there. Um, and the fact, you know, and, and this is only something I realized recently when a 14 year old boy contacted me uh, who wanted to do his history assignment on the mother and baby homes. And he said, it's not in my syllabus. I know this is a really important issue. It's not being taught in the schools. This chunk of Irish history is not being taught in the schools. Why? Because a lot of the schools are Catholic run. Catholics, you know what I mean? Uh, they have a, a large amount of influence in terms of education still. But I was kind of stunned, you know. So I, I pushed and I asked people who would be in the know and they said, well, you know, the, the Department of Education felt that it would be very upsetting for them. And I said, well, I grew up, you know, and had to learn about the famine. That was really upsetting, as was the Holocaust. History found is it's upsetting. <laughs> it is, but you find a way that it can be taught, you know what I mean, with respect for the age group of the people that are learning it. But that the fact that it wasn't even in our syllabus is beggar's belief, but it also speaks volumes around keep it hidden, let's forget that this ever happened. And I suppose the great thing to come out of nights like the Abbey in particular is that there's no there's no hiding anymore. It's out there. The genie is out of the bottle. It's all that's happening is more and more stories are coming. More and more people are speaking. More and more people are supporting us. Mm. So I think the government needs to wise up. But there is a terrible arrogance around it to assume that you don't understand the issue. The issues are very clear. You know what I mean? And they do try to baffle us with legalese and mm. legal language and frighten us with solicitor's letters and everything else. But the fact is, it's very simple. We have a right to our identity. That's It's very simple. Our birth certs, our medical information. Um, we have a right, the, the families have a right to know where their babies are buried. 9,000 babies died. There are thousands of them missing. They are in mass graves across Ireland. It's really simple. And it is simple enough for anybody out there to understand whether they are affected by the issue or not. But that arrogance is extraordinary. Um, and they are the people that are making decisions around our lives and treating us as such. And to bombard us really with legislation and try to seal the records for 30 years um, to, you know, tell us that to present a deeply flawed and offensive report after five years to do all of this in the middle of a pandemic mm -hmm. is appalling. Yeah. It's already a really difficult time. And to, to not even have the courtesy to post a copy of the report, but to leak it to the media first and then to email it as a PDF on request. Yeah. 3,000 pages. Yeah. I spent the last couple of weeks, a man contacted me 
after I appeared on The Late Late Show and said, uh, I run a printing company. Um, I'm sure there are people out there, elderly people, who don't have access to the internet, who don't can't go on the website. There are people who probably want a copy of the hard copy of the report, who don't want to go through, you know, the website and give their details or anything else. Maybe they're still, they haven't talked about it to anybody. So this man printed off 100 copies and distributed them all around Ireland, free of charge. So he said, you know, somebody might like to have it in their hands. And I just thought the kindness of that man. And he changed so many lives by doing that because he saw something that needed to happen, yeah. which the department didn't. And I was at the webinar the day the report was announced. Yeah. And it was before the, they'd even published the report, yeah. even though loads of people had it already, but we didn't. And it was deeply depressing. The language that was being used, the way they spoke, um, the way they sat to the side, they didn't look at us directly. The, the Taoiseach and and uh, um, Minister O'Gorman was so, deeply offensive. Noel, are you are you telling me that I'm trying to put myself into that room and imagine the the physicality and the setting and the energy in the room? And was it the case that you're saying that Michal Martin and Taoiseach and the Minister for Children were had their their body language was such that it was was it? in opposition or defence or what What was playing out in the... To me, it was just rude, to be quite honest. There was 500 of us on a webinar, uh, 500 survivors yeah. uh, on a webinar, um, and they were sitting at a table looking at across from each other, but to, to they were side on to us. So they'd kind of glance up the odd time, you know, kind of chat and then glance up. And that was the webinar that we were introduced to. Uh, uh, Tichuk made a speech and uh, blaming society, I think, was part of it before he made the bigger speech later on. Um, and then Minister O'Gorman just listed there, you know, there was no evidence of incarceration. There was no evidence of children being harmed by vaccine trials. Um uh, what was the other one they had? No evidence of um, forced adoption. They just listed all those things that the report felt was truthful. I, I don't know. I don't know any of the either of these men, right? And I've no affiliation to any party or agenda in that perspective. But I, I have a hunch that I don't really believe that Roderick O'Gorman, as a young Irish man in a relatively progressive arena, uh, or at least what. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But. Mm. Um, I don't believe that he believes that himself. I, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know the man personally yeah. and I don't hate him personally, but yeah. like him and previous ministers for children, like Catherine Zappone, I don't understand where they're coming from. And I find them deeply offensive is the only way to describe it. I find them deeply arrogant. Um, what became clear is that Roger O'Gorman is a man who knows the law. He, he's, he, he lectures on law, mm -hmm. but he made some serious errors around GDPR, made statements about GDPR that were completely incorrect. And I wonder where that's coming from. Um, I'm sure he's a lovely man, but and, and so is Michal Martin, I'm sure. But I don't know where they're coming from. All I do know, I assume they're coming from a point of privilege where they've never had to question their identity or their generations of families behind them. And they look at people and see similarities in their families or whatever. I think that they're just completely out of touch. But I don't understand why in all that time where they ask survivors to tell them what they need or what they want or what they require, or I don't understand during all the testimonies that they heard that they don't have some level of deep understanding of what's going on here and how people need to be treated, primarily with respect and understanding and be listened to, yeah. not tell us to share our stories or to tell, tell them what we want and then completely ignore it. So I don't understand where that level of disrespect come from, comes from. Yeah. I don't understand it. It's outmoded. It makes no sense. Is it because we're illegitimate? 
Is it because, you know, there are women who gave birth in mother and baby homes? Is it that stench of the past that we are to be othered and treated like this? This is a country, you know, we've repealed the eighth, we've marriage equality. And this glaring issue that harks back to a country crippled by Catholicism and conservatism, that it's still there in 2021. That's the thing that I find hardest to reconcile, mm-hmm. that we've come so far as a nation and our government is preventing us, preventing the nation because we do have the support from moving forward with this and acknowledging that there is serious human rights abuses here. You know, anyway, I can rant for hours on it, but there it's, you know, it's not, it's, it's not that hard to understand. And I don't understand why two, you know, bright men like that don't acknowledge that this is wrong, what they are doing. It is against our human rights. Yeah, I, I, I wonder sometimes in any institution, whether it be, uh, I've seen it in nonprofits, I've seen it in, mm. in other entities, whether it be churches or corporations or states, that the, it, it becomes a kind of, a, the expediency is around the protection of the institution at all costs, whether this is political party, the government, the state and so on. But I mean, what is a state if it doesn't have its citizens at its heart, its beating heart? So I think that's, for me, I remember sort of uh, reading some history around the formation of the civil service and Irish people's relationship with the state going back in a post-colonial context. And that I wonder, have we ever really reconciled that, that this is our state and it needs to act for us and with us and... There's, there's some disconnection that is still there. And until we heal that and resolve that, then we're going to be banging our heads around health, housing and every other thing. But I think this issue more than so many in, in decades speaks to the lack of humanity. And Absolutely. If you don't have humanity, what do we have? Mm, that's a really good point, though. It's like we just need to, you know, put on our grown up pants now and get on with it. Do you know what I mean? That there's a sense of like, oh, oh what have we got here? There's just this, I don't know, there's this level of fear about around so many things. And, you know, whatever progress that tries to be made, it's always a little half arsed sometimes. You know what I mean? That it's like we're not quite, as you said, we're not quite the state that we want to be or confident enough in our sense of ownership of of being a state. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I don't know. The the image that comes to mind is that, um, I mean, we've we've all gone through our own uh, hardships and wounds on personal levels and, and like there comes moments in your life where you have to look yourself in the mirror yeah. and not avoid the look, <laughs> not glance yourself in the mirror. Absolutely. Um, and not to be afraid of that, to see that, mm. that that's a point of transformation rather than something to be, uh, to be feared. Yeah. It's, it's, which, which is why I think theatre as well and your own work throughout the, the years, like theatre and the arts in general is such an important force and forum for helping us unpack ourselves isn't it it absolutely is and a lot of survivors um, have been in touch over the last while and said that you know they said we got we reached such an impasse in terms of you know trying to push things through uh, you know and they said to see the arts just suddenly just run with it and go here this is what we're trying to say this is who we are they said was just phenomenal and and so um so heartening you know and there is great room in the arts i mean i i'm an artist and that's where it started for me was you know writing this play about my experiences tracing my birth family standing on the stage and saying it out loud 
uh, and the, the repercussions from that and, and the journey that I've been on since 2013 um, is extraordinary. And I'm very privileged that I'm an artist. You know what I mean? I'm very privileged that I can do that, that the Abbey, you know, offer their stage as a platform to do something, to respond to, a, 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 you know, a huge injustice in Irish society. It's it's fantastic. And I'm very, very lucky that I have that. Not everybody does, but it's it was just, I suppose overwhelming in terms of what was achieved the other night in in you know in those three hours to let those stories just happen and you know this is something that the, the commission investigation report could have done they could have taken those stories and transcribed them exactly as we said give us our stories you know in the way that we told them and they couldn't do that and they had 21 was it 21 million so you know they had one job um, and they didn't do it and I don't understand why I don't understand why they just it had such a lack of care around around those testimonies. I don't I don't understand it, but it's brilliant that the other night happened. Did bringing this to the Abbey did it? Was there a sense of coming home on this for you? Like, was there a sense of completion? Or yeah, I mean, the very first job I had as an actor back in nineteen eighty seven was in the Abbey. Um, I have a long history with it, and uh, when in twenty seventeen, when Postscript went there. Uh, you know, everyone was going, oh, my God, it's in the Abbey, it's in the Abbey. It was like, but I started in the Abbey. You know, I was in was in the Peacock, I was on that very stage. And I think I've never felt so comfortable doing the show as I did in the Abbey. It's not, you know, I wasn't daunted by it. It is a fantastic, welcoming place. You know, it's 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 got such a history attached to it as well. And, you know, there were riots there and Yates's day and stuff and all of that. You know, it's where stuff kicks off. So it was very fitting that it was International Theatre. Um, no, and I and I was I've always felt comfortable in that building. I think it's it's an extraordinary building. Um and you know, to to have those stories, you know, I think I mean that's what was huge, I think, for people, even people in America around the world, babies that were adopted is sold to America, they were looking at our national theatre and hearing their stories. You know, it's it's phenomenal, you know, it's it's a real privilege. You mentioned um, that your own story was the impulse that led you to become an artist, if I heard that correct, or was that a large part of it? How did that come about? Um, well, I was an actor already. Um, I've been an actor since 87 and 2013 um, at the ripe old age of 47. I thought I really want to write something. I was getting a little kind of, I don't know, ad, sort of anxious around work and going, I want to do something. I want to challenge. And I think it was an age thing, really. Um so I thought I want to write something. So I had an idea for a play and I approached my friend, Michelle Forbes. Um, and the idea had nothing to do with, with adoption or that story. Um, but while we were devising the play, the adoption story kept coming up. Uh, and Michelle and a friend of mine, Louisa, who was in the room, said, Look, write that story. And I said, no, 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 no. Um, because at the time there were a lot of artists writing their own personal stories and, you know, presenting them on stage and playing themselves. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's too, it's too exposing, you know, but I did in the end. Um, and the play has still going strong. The last time we did it was in London in, in 2020, just before the lockdown. Um, we, we did it at the London Irish Centre and the place was packed with, you know, lots of, people from Ireland who has ended up in London and uh, a lot of them came from mother and baby homes. Uh, I must be amazing to do it in London. Oh, we did. It was incredible. It was incredible. And that was, 
um, Gary over there that runs it, he was said, look, I know this play will go down really well. We have such an Irish community in there. Um, I just know that it will. And it was a phenomenal two nights. But every time I do that show, and I've been doing it for a long time, I stand on stage and every at some point in the run, I just go, I cannot believe that this is still relevant. Mm. It's great to be working, yay. But it's still relevant. Nothing has changed from 2013 until 2021. Nothing fundamentally has changed. That's shocking, you know, on such a such an important issue. We're still battling, still battling for our birth certs, our medical information, you know, our birth information. There are still mass graves. No, nothing's being exhumed. I just think, God, how long does it take, you know? And people used to say to me during repeal and during marriage equality, you know, your turn will come, your turn will come. And I said, well, we've been waiting all our lives for this. We really have, you know, for this, for justice. Um, and I just wonder how long it's going to take. Mm. But it's, there's a whole other generation coming up behind us as well. So if they think, you know, they're waiting for us to die off. I've met a lot of young people whose, you know, parents were born in mother and baby homes and they're really angry with how their parents have been treated, you know. Yeah. How painful was it for you to write about in the, in the first instance? It was really hard. I mean, when I think back on it, like it was bonkers. I'd never, you know, I got funding to do it. I'd never gotten funding before. I'd never produced a play. I'd never written a play. Um, and thank God I had Michelle Forbes with me, writing with me. But it was, it was beyond emotional. It, it was uh, probably the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. And up until the night, you know, the lights went up and I stepped onto the stage, I actually didn't know if I was going to hold it together. Um, uh, it was a really overwhelming experience. I was really, really just feeling I can't do this. There was nowhere to hide. It was so deeply personal. I was not playing a character. These were words written by myself. It was my own personal story. I mean, it was enough to drive me to distraction. <laughs> like it was just ridiculously hard um, and very emotional. And I think afterwards I kind of collapsed a bit, you know, um, I was exhausted. And that's where it leaves you even you know, the activism is the same thing, even the other night, you, and uh, you just have this level of exhaustion and that you can't even describe, you know, it just takes so much out of you. Um, but it was a difficult thing. And, and again, nobody forced me to do it, but I think the years of being an actor kicked in when I was ready to just fail and think I can't do this. I just can't. All the technical skills I had as an actor to say me lines, remember me lines, not bump into the furniture all had kept me going and I got through it, you know, but it's a tough play to do. And I, you know, it, it always it takes, it takes a lot, it takes a lot to do it, you know, cause it's, it's so deep, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining uh, that you're somebody that has put in a lot of hard yards in terms of personal development work to get yourself to a place of being able to take that forward. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a duty of care around it, you know. Um, So, yeah, I've done counselling and I've done psychotherapy and everything else. Um, Not because I'm adopted, but because of how I've been treated because I'm adopted. You know, it would be a lot easier if this was normalised and, you know, you weren't coming up against blocks every step of the way. If you dare to ask for the details of your birth and where you came from um, and medical information or whatever else you need. So I have done as much as I can still a work in progress is still a long way to go um and it takes 
you know, it takes a lot of courage to lift the shame around it all. I think that's the biggest thing is realizing that I've nothing to be ashamed of for being adopted or being born outside of marriage. The shame belongs to the Irish state and the Catholic church. It's not my shame. It's nothing to do with me. Um, so you do, you do have to work on yourself. You know, it's, it's, it's a hard one because that's the legacy you've been handed and society and, you know, well, not society at large, but the, the government and the church at large make you feel like you're still lesser, you know, you're still othered. But the great thing about being adopted is that you have a particular sense of self that other people don't have. It's a very unique sense of self and it makes you very resourceful. And the, you ultimately, the most important driving force you have is that you take nothing for granted. You can't. Mm -hmm. The very circumstance of your birth was compromised. The information about your birth is compromised. So you have nothing, you can't take anything for granted the way other people do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's quite a powerful thing. I think that fuels me as an activist. Um, and I think the activism in a way is a way of dealing with the anger and the hurt around this issue. Um, and that's a very powerful thing to be able to do, that you're not sitting at home like a lot of survivors are with no one to talk to, no way to express that anger or upset or hurt. Um, and, I, you know, that I feel I'm in a very powerful position mm -hmm. in that way. It's hard, but it beats just, you know, keeping it inside. You know, there's great power in, in, in speaking out and seeing other people rise up or be happy that you're doing it because it, it reflects on them and it gives them a voice or something, you know. Um, it's a small thing, but it's, I'd like to think that it affects change in some way. That's, that's what I hope for, that this fight, you know, will lead to justice for so, so many people. Um, I think that's really important. Yeah, it feels to me like kind of lifting a veil, you know, that... Um this veil was put on us as a nation, but also true in many other countries in different guises, but uh, forces that we didn't necessarily choose ourselves decided what the narrative was and what the morality was or what was deemed to be morality. I even saw, you know, just a matter of days ago that there's a new kind of clarification emerging from, from the Vatican that, um, you know, that according to whatever dogma, um, that, you know, same-sex marriage is what is deemed to be sinful according to this dogma. And it just feels like... I know, it's like... like I, I shouldn't laugh because I actually, I'm more close to tears that I know. this is reality for how many suicides, how many, all that shame, you know, and and the fact that we're, we're still talking about an institution that... Um, controls effectively the majority of Irish schools, which... Yeah, that's the frightening thing about it. Yeah, and, and so I think, how do you hold that space? Because there are those that will now just hear what I've just said and say, oh, he's gone off on one about the Vatican or Rome or Catholics, which is actually not the case. It's, it's not about... Um, it's not about, like, replacing one shame for another and shaming one, somebody's religion or beliefs at all. Um, but how do you, like... Um, well, that's my perspective, but how, how do you feel around whatever anger or emotion you might feel around that institution and, it, and its future in, in Ireland? And um, I, think, I think we need to acknowledge the, the power that they still have. You know, I remember when the Pope came to Ireland um, and 
oh God, I'll never forget that day. And people going, oh, look, only 44,000 people turned up to Phoenix Park or whatever. You know, it was like, but he still had a lot of power. The roads were closed. He was able to drive down O'Connell Street. You know what I mean? Um, I went to Tume that day. I went to a, um, a, a procession march, really, uh, to, the, to, the, to the site of where the, the babies are buried. Um, because I just couldn't bear to be in Dublin and I, I just needed to get away. Um, but we need to acknowledge the, the power that they have and we need to acknowledge that there is collusion between the church and state. Uh, that's the most important thing. And I know we, we want to be able to laugh at the church and we laughed there when we talked about them coming out against same-sex marriage. like, how oh, would you go to hell, you know? Um, but we, we, need to, we need to really root out that power because they are extremely powerful. They are really powerful. They have a phenomenal amount of money. Um, they are the wealthiest organization in the world. I mean, you look at the Vatican and everything else, which I refused to go to when I was in Rome. People going, let's go to the Vatican. I was like, it's the one place I'm not going. But we need to really look at it and look at the 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 arrogance and the power that they have. Uh, I mean, the very fact that they are not answerable to the law of the land is the thing that gets me. You know, um, and I remember I, I talk about that in the play, you know, canon law which is a made-up law that they made up so that they can, you know, that they're not accountable in the law of the land when it comes to abuse or denial of human rights or whatever. I mean, that's incredibly arrogant that they're allowed to do that even in this day and age, that if there's something covered up, abuse is covered up or whatever, that somehow, well, we didn't report it to the guards, but that's all right because we have our own little law here. I mean, bloody hell, you know, we need to we need to root them out of the schools. I mean, it's dangerous that they that they're you know, the mental health and sexual health of young people is in their hands in, edu- in terms of education. I think that's really frightening. Well, un- unfortunately, that, to, that was a like, reminder this week that to, to call yeah. sinful is... For young people in school who are growing up gay, you know what I mean? What what does that say to them or trans or, you know, what does that say? It's it's so damning. It's so upsetting. Yeah. Um, and I respect people's religion. I, you know, I grew up in the Catholic religion, um, uh, which they, this is the thing that frightens me. They still own you unless you, you know, remove yourself right to the bishop and do all of that, uh, which I'm in the process of. But I, we really need to address it and we really need to separate church and state finally. And that's the only way we're going to move forward mm-hmm. um, where, you know, education is not affected by them. Um, hospitals are not affected by them, that ethos, because it's the more peop- we battle against them, like at the moment, they just kind of go underground and there's all this kind of mm, stuff going on down here because, you know, it's not cool to be Catholic now. So we'll just operate under the radar kind of thing. But we really need to address it and realize that, yeah, we can laugh at them, and I do, and go, oh, for God's sake, what are they like? But we also have to acknowledge the power that they have, you know? Um, and I saw that bringing my mum to Mass, and you know, over the years, and during repeal and everything, and there's a priest on the altar who I remonstrated with afterwards, talking about we must cherish mothers and children, we must cherish mothers and children. Over and over again, he said, you know, to get people um, not to, you know... Uh, acknowledged that repeal was going to happen. And I said it to him afterwards. I said, but your organization has never ch- never cherished women and children. I said, Besber's a half a mile from here. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, 900 babies dumped on the land. I said, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, well, now, well, you know. And it was like, God, they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to stand up and persuade people to vote the way they want, you know to keep us in the dark ages and keep the power and keep, you know, women subjugated and control over women's sexuality, their bodies, everything else. I mean, 
we're still in the throes of it. And I, and that's the thing. I think we, we just need to acknowledge that. The Catholicism, it's, it's not gone. There's still a huge grip in Ireland and within our politics, within our political system. Um, and until we root that out, I think, yeah, we, we, you know, we, we're going to be dealing with a lot of issues, you know. Mm. What strikes me about a lot of it is that um, a lot of the um, the issues are are um, the the issues and the and the problems that you refer to there they they strike me as un, entirely unchristian. Yes, know? and so if you even look at the the theology <laughs> or the verse or Bible or scripture. Mm-hmm. It, it speaks of love. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you, you know, so it's not about, it's actually even could potentially be an invitation for the organization or institution to honor its own creed. Mm. But that's what I, you know, anytime I end up talking to someone in the, and there are good people, you know, in the Catholic church, I've met decent priests and nuns mm-hmm. and I've asked them to speak up. It's like, well, speak up, you know, challenge your bishops, you know, deal with this issue. And they don't, unfortunately, or if they do, I'm not aware of it. But, um, you know, the one thing I say to them is, you know, why did nobody in their hearts give those children a Christian burial? You know, all those babies that were dumped in, in mass graves. I don't understand if you are religious people and you believe in the sanctity of life and all those things, why you saw fit to treat those children so appallingly and let them die in your care um, and and just de- destroy women's lives with the treatment in in on birthing tables and everything else to do to to calculatedly prevent mothers from connecting with their babies and babies connecting with their mothers why why would you do that what you know lack of humanity in someone that is supposed to be you know, full of Christianity and love and all of that. Where does that come from? <laughs> you know, it's not about religion. It's not about care or love. It's about, the, it's the opposite. Mm. It's hatred. Um, that's, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's it's one of the reasons this podcast is called the Love and Courage podcast, because I feel that regardless of what politics, what religion, what perspective, what background, that if we could sort of unite around the uh, the concept of love as a united for a uniting force, and uh, regardless of all the other isms, uh, yeah. then we'll be okay, you know. And yeah, I love that love and courage because they are they do go hand in hand, you know, and they they can make a change. Yeah, I mean, love just sitting there chilling out on its own is great, but like it needs to get up, get up and out there, you know. So, yeah, it takes work. So, um, I'm, I'm, I want to go back to your life as an artist and a creator, and and you, you did say that it's a tremendous privilege, but mm-hmm. it, art, being an artist, is not without its own challenges, from my understanding. Oh. Uh, it's- Bonkers, yeah. It's it's a bonkers yeah, life. Very mildly. <laughs> no, it's completely bonkers. You know, um, I don't. I have no regrets. I'm really. I've been doing it for 34 years. I have yeah. no regrets whatsoever. But it's completely bonkers. And the only reason I'm doing it now was well, not the only reason, but this is the reason I say jokingly and unfortunately sometimes people take me seriously. I'm 55. 
I'm too old for nursing. There's nothing else I can do. So I, I have to stick with this. And I said that uh, um, at a, I think it was a school reunion or something. And, and someone said, oh, it's not too, it's not too late for nursing at all. I can send you some leaflets. And I was like, I would be a terrible nurse. But it is a bonkers life. Like it really is. But it's, it's extraordinary to do something that you love and to, you know, uh, to, to be involved in something that is your passion and it is my passion and it has been since I was a child I loved performing I loved writing I loved uh just you know creativity I love being creative um and to to get to do that all your life is amazing but it it makes no sense and it's you know uh, it's left me as a big child half the time you know what I mean I don't think I've ever grown up because of it Mm -hmm. because you 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 know it's not like a normal job you know it just isn't um and it's amazing and adrenaline and all the stuff and then nothing and then it's all mad again so but I've met phenomenal people I've had incredible experiences I've done extraordinary things um and I love it I absolutely love it and to be able I think at 47 to turn a piece of art or have uh, you know what I mean or a piece of activism into art to have that happen and it happens more and more it lies in terms of particularly as a writer um, that it is uh, talking about stuff that isn't being talked about. And that's what happened with Postscript uh, was, you know, was voicing an issue that hadn't really been talked about in theatre, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't out there. Um, and to be able to do that is extraordinary. And I'm very, very lucky. Um, it's, I, I love it, but it's, it's ridiculously hard. It's, it's so hard and so crazy. Um, but I wouldn't do anything else. And I have no regrets, even even on the bad days where you're going, oh, why didn't I do something else? It doesn't last. You know, you just go on for the next thing or a gig comes in or, you know, you get an acting job or whatever and you're off again, you know. So, yeah. I don't know how it feels. I was thinking if I ever had kids and they just went. And I see it with friends of mine who are actors who have kids and they're going, oh, she wants to be an actor. <laughs> you know, and you go, well, you can't tell her not to be an actor. It's like, how do you tell them it's a lifetime of disappointment? As one of my friends says. But it's it's a great life. And I think at the moment, I think particularly at this, and it's probably an age thing as well, that convergence of of art and activism for me is mighty. I I, I love that this has happened. And it wasn't deliberate, you know, I've never had a plan. It's literally just reacting to events. Mm. Um, but that convergence for me uh, is huge and it's really important to me. And I'm, it gives me great power as an artist and it gives me great power as an activist. And I find that is is the reason I get up in the morning, I suppose. You know, it's that charge of like, this is what I can do as an artist. This is what I can do as an activist. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky. Lovely, Noel. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for all that you do on behalf of the many that maybe won't get to thank you. And I think it's a great service to the entire nation. And I will kind. Thank you. Great success in the roads ahead and all the stages that you will venture on to whatever comes next. Or else I might become a nurse the next time you see me. (laughs) 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 Do those courses. Not a chance. (laughs) Thanks again. Thank you. 
Hello, Rory here again. We have Susan's song coming up in just a moment. And also before you go, can I ask, would you be open to please spreading this episode far and wide, make people aware of it, particularly those you think might be interested, share on social media or wherever else you think is important or useful. These voices have been silenced for far too long and it's important we get them out there. And if you want to check out and find out more about Noelle, please go to noellebrown.com. What a remarkable, wonderful human being she is. And do check out her Abbey Theatre Home Part 1 production online. You might also be interested in my podcast conversation with Joseph Farrell, which is relevant to this episode. Also, if you're new to the podcast, do check out the archives and please subscribe, rate and review where you can. And if you want to chip in, just head over to loveandcourage.org. And we're going to end now with a song from my wife, Susan Quirk's forthcoming album. The album is called Into the Sea and the song is called To the Bone and I'm sharing it in honour of Noel, to all the amazing activists, survivors, and to anyone who needs reminding right now of their strength and their spirit to keep going. It's a truly wonderful song and it's available on Spotify, Bandcamp, Apple, YouTube, etc. and over at susanquirk.com where you can find out all about her music and her Learn to Meditate classes as well. She's a really amazing uh, meditation teacher as well so you can also pre-order her album via her website as well and check out her other songs and music videos that's all for now until next time here's to a world of more love and courage and enjoy the music from susan quirk
Strong to the bone. 